0: Crashing and burning. Welcome to The Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com and of course Jeremy's work is always at houstonchronicle.com and expressnews.com in San Antonio. We're going to talk about the very, very, very special session and how it's sort of going out with a whimper, Jeremy. We'll get to that in just a little bit. People want to hear what we have to say about school vouchers, the school coupons, the uh, the border Legislation and all of that. But first, you made the trip to Houston. To see former President Trump, he's on a Texas swing once again. He was in Dallas and Houston, right? Can you set the stage for us? What was the event like?
1: Yeah, uh, he made a couple of stops, like you mentioned. He went to Dallas and he went down into Houston where uh, he was having a rally at an offshore oil drilling engineering company uh, right in the heart of Houston's energy sector. And you can – you better believe the Mm -hmm. word oil came up a whole heck of a lot of times.
0: (laughs) I bet it did. During the speech, he took direct aim, of course, at President Biden.
1: There has never
2: been a more incompetent, more corrupt, or worse president in the history of the United States than crooked Joe Biden. What he's doing, he is destroying our country. And the happiest person alive today is a man named Jimmy Carter. Because Jimmy Carter... I would say had a brilliant, a brilliant presidency if you compare it to what we're going through with this person.
0: You know, Jimmy Carter always seemed pretty happy anyway, especially post-presidency. But one of those guys who uh, really sort of invented the modern post-presidency, right, where you're way more popular after your president. Anyway, in talking about how he can beat the guy that he called crooked Joe Biden, Trump was his usual understated self.
2: Number one, you need super competence and you got to be smart as hell and you got to be able to handle all the bullshit that they give you, including including when they make you the political opponent of somebody and they get the justice department on you and they said he spoke badly about the election. The election was rigged.
0: Of course, the election was not rigged. I can't imagine, Jeremy, having to be someone who covers national politics every day because you have to say that every time, right? I mean, We're getting to a version of that in Austin where a lot of times I have to say what was just said is not true, but it's not as much as the fact checkers have to do it at the national level in D.C. and New York and at the CNN Center in Atlanta. Now, Trump also said that Texans cannot sit this out Stop me if you've heard this before. This is going to be the most important election of our lifetimes.
2: It's the most important election of your lives. And I love your state. I'll always take care of your state. Go out and vote. And we're going to make America great again. We're going to make it greater than ever before. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mary.
0: Some happy music there to wrap things up, but there was the very serious J6th choir at the beginning of the speech, Jeremy, something that you made note of. Now, this is the the song that was first made famous um, when Trump held that rally in Waco. And you noticed what he said after the song concluded. Let's listen to that, and then I want to get your take on what you thought about it uh, as it was happening.
2: Thank you very much. And you, and you know, know what, what that, that was? was and... That was, I call them the J6 hostages, not prisoners. I call them the hostages, what's happened. And it's a shame. And, you know, they did that. And they asked me whether or not I would partake and do the beautiful words. And I said, yes, I
0: would. Jeremy, he's calling them Hostages, he's called them prisoners previously, which he, he, you know, he talked about there. Uh, but hostages that's that's sort of an maybe not just sort of that is an escalation in the rhetoric about his supporters who rioted at the Capitol back on January 6th, right?
1: Yeah, back when he's you know first talked about this video or he showed the video in Waco in March when we were at that rally. Uh, he didn't call them hostages at that time, but, but what we do know is like you know they you know, the, the people who put this music out or I, I used the word music lately. <laughs> uh, the people who put, loosely, put this, yeah. Yeah, the people who put this out said these are twenty of the January sixth defendants. Uh, they won't say which ones all of them are. Uh, we don't have a full list of who they are. But uh, – so they've kind of made this presentation. And so this isn't – like I said, this isn't the first time Trump has used this video. Uh, He didn't have the video at this event. He just had the audio. Hmm. So it's not the first time. But what was so – you know it was just startling to hear that word hostages given what we're dealing with right now as we know that there are American hostages in Gaza – Right now, right. Uh, mm-hmm. It just seems like the timing of using that phraseology for people who attacked police officers and the Capitol that day mm-hmm. felt a little awkward for me, if not a
0: lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it should be awkward. I, right? you know, continues to be. And again, this is where I don't envy the national media at all, having to talk about what this guy says all the time. Um, you know, some of the smartest people talking about the most outrageous comments all the time 24/ 7 if they're covering Donald Trump um, but the whole thing about January 6th politically I think in a large sense for the Republican Party is that it speaks to this you know giant part of the Republican electorate that just cannot accept that Trump lost the last election right that he is the loser he's not the winner he's the loser and the reason that that's important is not that you know Democrats can brag that they beat him and then call them losers that's not it. It's that if you're a political party and your guy loses, it means you need to reevaluate what you're doing. Are are you are you doing what it's going to take to win the next election? Or are you going to do the exact same thing that got you the big L in the last election? And it seems right now. And, you know, Jeremy, that I appreciate how much you think that polling is always accurate, especially this at this point in the cycle. (laughs) I'm just going to look at some I'm just going to look at some of the numbers here. Um, I like to go to the real clear politics uh, averages, and, and I'll give you that just for the shorthand here. I'm not going to go through every poll that's been done recently. But the national polling, it shows that Trump is so far out ahead of anybody else who's running that it almost seems like they shouldn't be running, right? That He's at 60% if you take the average of the national polls, where DeSantis is second and he, he's nowhere close. He's lucky to be getting to 14%. He's at 13.4% of what I'm looking at. uh, Nikki Haley is at uh, 8.3%. That Vivek Ramaswamy is at (laughs) 4.6%. And then if you look at the early states, I mean, think about what happened in 2016 where Cruz was able to win in Iowa, New Hampshire was competitive, but that's just not the case now. For Iowa, Trump's at 48.8, DeSantis at 17, Haley at 11, Scott at 6, New Hampshire, basically the same, 46 for Trump. And then the numbers look similar on down the line in New Hampshire as well, um, and Republicans are lining up behind, you know, behind the guy who lost the last election. Now I will say, in fairness, um, that the general election matchups right now uh, look pretty even between Trump and Biden. But of course, those numbers don't really mean anything. A, a complete—we're about exactly one year away from the next general election. Republicans lining up behind this guy, but you also—you uh, know—did write about the fact that that you know the, there's a difference between what the donors are doing right now and what the voters seem to be uh preferring in these polls right i mean here you have trump talking a lot about oil as you mentioned he's in texas he's going to talk about oil and gas a lot uh but some of the big donors in texas the way you know be they uh those billionaires out in west texas or you know some of the millionaires and billionaires in the houston area in the oil and gas business they're splitting their donations now right
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, anytime I'm doing a story, you know, I always think about like, what is the second why of a story? And so what I mean by that is, you know, first you ask yourself the question of why is Trump here? Well, he was Trump. He, Trump was here because he wanted to, you know, talk about oil and, 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 you know, try to get into that industry a little bit more. Well, what's that second why? Why does he have to do that now? Well, he has to do that now because Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley just did fundraising runs into Midland. And it turns out both of them right now are out raising Trump in Midland and in Houston. I know that sounds crazy, right? Like, how is that possible? And even some of the people who have given to Trump in the past are now giving to DeSantis and Haley, clearly looking for another alternative. And and put that in the context of like, okay, so – you know that is all happening as Nikki Haley is starting to rise in the poll uh, it, it, particularly in Iowa and New Hampshire. remember the the nationwide polls on uh, primary they're just garbage because they don't mean anything, right it doesn't matter. right mm-hmm. the the, yeah, the, yeah. the most important thing right now is what happens in Iowa and what happens in new hampshire and, and and those numbers you just mentioned in those two states, look at what those polls are finally showing for the first time. Trump is at fifty percent or just below it. That means there's 50% of people who are not saying they're going for Trump yet. And now the question is, will somebody coalesce? Uh, or, or be able to coalesce around that kind of thought process. And so what you see is Haley starts to kind of rise up uh, like she'll have two shots at this the way I kind of see it. Uh, Nikki Haley is like if she, if she keeps improving, she get and is just competitive in Iowa, and certainly if she finished second in Iowa, that would be a big win for her. But then she goes to New Hampshire where she's doing particularly well. Uh, that gives a much better shot and remember what comes right after that south carolina her home state so you know you have a 3 week period of time where the whole race can turn really quickly we've seen iowa you know in years past just being fickle you know they you know trump didn't even win the majority of the vote there before you know it's like right. just remember it's like yeah. like it's a place that like he may not win it again but just cuz of the way that thing is structured so that, that's a long way to say there's a runway there for Haley and DeSantis still, despite what you know the polls look like right now, there's an avenue there. And this is when people start tuning in more. This is now when mm-hmm. both DeSantis and Haley have ads up. And I think it's getting more serious, which is then, so why is Trump here? well cuz he needs to stop that from happening he needs to stop the fundraisers from funneling money to them you know and mm-hmm. continuing their ride cuz if they have money to go on tv they become more of a challenger and so i think that's what was so important to me about like why he was in houston it's like yeah he cares a mm-hmm. little bit about the march 5th primary you know big deal but really what he's m- more concerned about is how do i keep that money from leaking out the back door and getting over into stances and Nikki Haley and them caused me trouble. Right. And, you, and during the speech yesterday, you could see something he's been doing for the last couple of weeks, particularly is really mm-hmm. upping his criticism of Nikki Haley in these speeches. He's starting to call her bird brain and overrated, you know, uh, all the time. Despite the fact, remember, you know, Donald Trump appointed Nikki Haley to be his ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, in mm-hmm. his first turn, in his first year as president, and so he has a relationship with her, and so but he has to now call her names uh, to kind of do well, do what Trump does, and so th- that's yeah, we why we will I,
0: throw anybody under the bus.
1: Yeah, to me, this kind of almost felt like the opening of the really of the real presidential campaign. We are now within seventy days of the Iowa caucuses, and if anybody's going to take out Trump, they better figure out a way to do it now. And you just see at this time, this is where Haley is starting to surge past. Uh, Ron DeSantis uh, and that second place spot, certainly in New Hampshire and is starting to challenging it in Iowa. And if that breaks for her again with South Carolina as the backdrop on that next run, Mm -hmm. you know, she could be in a much better spot than I think we can see right now. Watch, watch the space for the next couple of weeks (laughs) and we'll know for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And speaking of fundraising, after the event that you attended there, there was one of those high dollar fundraisers in Houston uh, at the new hotel owned by uh, Tillman Fertitta, that uh, that post oak hotel, which I have yet to walk through because I have some objections to spending money with Tillman Fertitta. But uh, at that event, who was on stage? Birds of a feather. Um, you had uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who, of course, uh, put out a tweet yesterday about how he was on the plane from Dallas to Houston with Trump he didn't he did not include um, a picture of the crowd but he said that it was standing room only that you know people of course are pumped up to uh, to see uh, Trump and who else was there at the Post Oak Hotel Attorney General Ken Paxton of course Paxton like Trump faces his own, Legal issues, and also in Houston this week, he found out when his trial is going to be. Paxton finally going to go on trial in April for these charges on securities fraud that are about a decade old at this point. Ryan Chandler at KXAN was there at the courthouse. For the
3: first time, Mr. Paxton's going to be facing justice. The long legal drama continuing into its ninth year. Kent Paxton, stoic and silent in a Houston court, not addressing questions on allegations he defrauded investors while getting paid to push stocks.
2: There's going to be evidence and there will be, some, there will be a jury becomes unbiased.
3: These allegations were not considered in Paxton's impeachment trial. Prosecutors say he won't go free this time. That was a farce of a mockery of an outrage and injustice. And in this courtroom, in this building, truth matters.
0: Brian Weiss there, one of the special prosecutors at the end of the report, he said it was a farce of a mockery of a of of a miscarriage of justice, something like that. It was quite a quote. I, I saw some people trying to type that out on Twitter. It was a lot uh, in one sentence. Um, the prosecutors in that case also said, Jeremy, that the, and they were just taking a direct swipe at Dan Patrick. They said the judge here in this court is not corrupt. Of course, making uh, you know reference to Patrick taking $3 million from wealthy Paxton supporters right before presiding over the trial of Ken Paxton in the Texas Senate, which of course uh, he walked away scot free from that, but this is where you could actually go to prison with this trial in Houston, right? I mean, the, those are serious charges. Um, now, I've had some people try to tell me that, oh, that's just a paperwork thing. That doesn't happen very much, uh, you know, in a, in a way that ends up in a in a criminal courtroom. Um, but if I were Paxton, I'd be way more worried about that than potential removal from office, which is the only thing that could have happened uh, in that trial in the Senate here in. Austin, speaking of Dan Patrick, some breaking news right now as we're doing the show on Friday afternoon, Jeremy. Lieutenant Governor Patrick just put this on social media. He said that, quote, I suggested to Greg Abbott that if the Texas House fails to pass acceptable school choice legislation this fall, I would support him calling us back for another special session on February 5th of 2024. Sounds like Patrick, just like the members of the House, T- they're all tired of being here. I don't the, the chatter out of the governor's office is that if there is no agreement on a quote school choice bill by the end of this special session, which I'm gonna take a bit, I'm gonna take a big gamble here on the show, Jeremy, and I'm gonna say it's not gonna happen by Tuesday. <laughs> I, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna tell you that a school, a school voucher bill is is dead in the water. I had a I had a Republican, a top Republican, text me. Two nights ago, and said that the quote choice bill that that's six feet under close quote that that's done done for here in this deal. Now, as recently as this week, Governor Abbott was saying it could still happen, which just sounded to me like a Hail Mary desperation. At one point, the governor put out a statement saying that he quote had a deal with Speaker Dade Phelan in the House on a school choice bill that would also. Include a school finance package. Um, you asked him about it at a news conference. Was this the uh, Was this the news conference about Texas being best for business? Is that what, yes? Is that was over that the focus? The, okay.
1: Yeah, over at the governor's mansion, and of course, there's no way we're going to let him not <laughs> answer questions about you know the school choice program.
0: It has been the thing that he has tried to get over the finish line all year. He, he really started pushing this in January and now it's november and the votes are exactly the same in the house as far as i can tell here's what the governor said when you asked him about whether this can still get done during the special session that concludes at the beginning of next week
1: uh given the state of the voucher Jeremy, I,
3: I will tell you we are on track uh, to ensure there will not be another special session there is enough time uh, to get everything done that we want to get done that needs to get done to avoid a special session uh, and uh, especially with uh, what I think will be the the bill that would be coming out of the House later on today. Uh, I think that uh, it, it will be embraced because so many legislators uh, have so many wins uh, in the bill that would be coming out today. Uh, I think that we are on a, on a timetable where we should be able to conclude everything that needs to be achieved this special session.
0: Would you describe his face while he was saying that as a straight face? <laughs> yeah. That he yes. was saying that with that. He was very serious when he said all that. Well, number one, no bill ever came out from the House that he's talking about. No language came out that was different from what they had proposed before. That's the first thing. Second thing, the House did something interesting, which is that they are going to just, quote, stand at ease until Monday or Tuesday. They didn't even adjourn for the day. And this is, you know, legislative language, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, usually they would adjourn for three days and come back. Under the Texas Constitution, when the when the legislature is in session, if either the House or Senate is going to be gone for more than three days, not on the floor, then they have to get permission from each other. They have to get permission from the House and Senate. Uh, the, the House would have to ask the Senate or vice versa. I don't think the House and Senate are in a mood to give each other permission to take long weekends <laughs> at this point, uh, you know, as angry as everybody is at each other. But just a week ago, um, Abbott had said that he was really close in the Texas House, that he had moved votes, that he was hearing from Republicans who have heard from their voters, who are very concerned about this, and they want to see school choice become the law of the land in Texas. I'm
3: here to tell you that contrary to what you may be reading in the newspaper, we are closer than we've ever been. My team today, yesterday, the day before last week, my team as we speak right now, in the governor's office, they're working with the Texas House of Representatives to hammer out a deal that will deliver school choice for you, your families, and for all Texans across our state.
0: Now Abbott's still saying that vouchers had to pass before he would allow for school finance and teacher pay raises to be put on the special session agenda. That's where he was last week. Now, vouchers didn't pass, but he went ahead and put those issues on the special session um, agenda this week. Why did he do that? Houston area Democratic Representative Ron Reynolds was offended by where we were last week when Abbott was, as he put it, sort of holding teacher pay raises hostage. And I think there were some Republicans and Democrats who would agree with Reynolds, who had a lot of uh, you know bipartisan pushback to the governor, Jeremy, where I've heard from Lawmakers in both parties who said that, that the you know, school finance needs to be addressed. We saw that the Speaker of the House at the beginning of this special session had said that vouchers have absolutely no chance in the House if there's not also increased funding for public education. Here's what uh, Reynolds said on WFAA in Dallas.
4: The governor... Uh, it's been clever to say, hey, if you guys pass vouchers, you can get teacher paid. We want our teachers to get a, a pay raise. And we are very desperate because our teachers are woefully underpaid. But if it means passing vouchers, then we won't do it. So there's no compromise. We will not compromise by any means for vouchers in this special session, in the next special session, in another special session. We're hardline knows there's no compromise. There's no deal. Listen, the governor says I'm going to keep calling special sessions until we get this done. How do you think this is all going to end, especially with next year being an election year? Well, you're right. I mean, the the, the primary election is uh, March, uh, and Governor Abbott, by the t- Constitution, can keep calling 30 day special sessions all the way through election day. He can do that, uh, but I don't think that's going to change the course. I think that many of the I can tell you from for a fact our. Legislative Black Caucus and the House Democratic Caucus stands very firm. There may be a few exceptions, but for the most part, they're nowhere near the votes that they need to pass vouchers in the House. They need 76 votes. Right now, I believe they have, you know, 50 something.
0: I think he's right on the math, Jeremy. They probably top out at about 55 to 60 votes for some sort of a voucher program in the Texas House of Representatives, well short of the majority that's needed uh, to pass a piece of legislation. It's been bipartisan pushback. There are a lot of people who are being paid a lot of money to try to convince you, dear listener, that this is a conservative versus liberal fight, that this is a Republican versus Democratic fight, but we know that it's not that at all. Here's Republican Representative Drew Darby from San Angelo, a veteran of the legislature and a big supporter of public education and an opponent of what the supporters call school choice. He's saying that we need to get it right when it comes to school finance first, before we talk about any of this other stuff that would be you know, fooling around with the way we do school finance in Texas. He's saying that we need to fund schools, and that's how you fund students.
3: You know, it, it's been our position uh, that we have never. This state has neverly, really, never properly funded education. When you look at total per student funding, uh, we rank forty third in the country. Uh, only a few at bottom uh, below us, and so I find that objectionable. And so I also find objectionable any talk of taking public dollars out of public schools and supporting private or parochial schools. That don't have the same accountability, don't have the same testing, don't have the same transparency, and and quite frankly, don't have open enrollment
4: policies.
0: So there you have Democrats and Republicans saying no to this. This issue over the course of this almost entire year now, Jeremy, has been a case study in how to not interact with the legislature if you're the governor. First of all, he did not really try to negotiate with them on anything. Remember during the regular session, he wasn't in Austin talking to legislators as much as he was on the road in legislative districts, trying to convince people in areas like, I don't think he was in Drew Darby's district, but he was in districts like his, where you have Republicans who have been skeptical of this because they understand the stakes. And I get asked about this all the time on uh, various state broadcasts. You know, folks in Dallas and Austin, San Antonio, Houston, they all ask me why these Republicans don't want to come to some agreement on, quote, school choice, which is something that their voters will say that they support. Now, when you look at that polling, it's it's left very vague. The, the questions will say, do you support school choice without any explanation of what that means exactly? Um, the governor's been talking about education savings accounts. If you poll Republican primary voters on it, they'll say they like it. Uh, to the tune of about 90% with a reason that these Republicans in these small communities are not for this. There's a, there's a policy reason and a political reason. The policy reason is that they know that if you start to take money out of public education over the long haul, it's going to bleed the system. And they understand that it not, it, it doesn't just matter that the local school district might lose some kids to either homeschooling or maybe some other option they know that the way the school finance system is set up in Texas is the state flows money through formulas down to the districts. um, And so you're trying to come to equitable funding, whether people live in river Oaks in Houston, or they live in the South side of San Antonio, wherever it is that kids get an equal shot at equal resources for their educations. Here's a political reason for it though. When these Republicans have primaries, and they, and they get a well-funded opponent. The person they would be more afraid of than some rando candidate who came out of nowhere and hasn't really been active in the community but says all the right sort of Trumpy things, they wouldn't be as afraid of that person as they would be afraid of the school superintendent or a school board member, someone like that putting their name on the ballot in their Republican primary. I'm here to tell you that people like Drew Darby or... For price who's retiring uh, and he's not, he's not coming back, but um, people like Trent Ashby, for example, from, from East Texas, they would worry about being a yes vote for vouchers because it's the kind of thing that can get them beat back in their districts. Um, And that's one of those things. We don't see a lot of this in Texas politics where it's one issue that can get you beat in your primary, but there are certain places in this state where being a yes on that would be such a huge political liability that, that, that there are more than 20 Republicans in the House who are never going to go along with that. And I will say one other thing about it. There's one former school, school superintendent in the uh, in the Texas House, Gary Van Dever from up around Texas Arcana. I was told that he might be okay with a voucher program, but only if it's very, very small and only for special ed kids. But it would have to have all of the things in it that drew darby talked about which is the the private school would have to be subjected to the same testing the same standards as every public school in texas etc and if you don't have all those strings attached which republicans and conservatives always ask for if public dollars are going to be flowing to a private entity if it's not if it's not an education thing then if, whether it's food stamps or whatever else there's always all kinds of conditions for how you can use the money. But on this, you have some people who say they're conservative arguing that, uh, no, people should just get the money and they can take it wherever they want uh, without there being any accountability to the state as far as how kids are being served.
1: Yeah, and there's another huge political miscalculation here. I don't know if I, I, I'm i going to blame Abbott for it or the Republican Party of Texas or who at this point, maybe TPPF, the Texas Public Policy Foundation. The people who have been putting all this political strain on the the rural Republicans who have not joined forces, like here's the problem. It's like you've put, you've sicked the dogs on these folks, these 20 or so members who won't go with you, mm-hmm. right? You've sicked the dogs on them and you're you're thinking that's going to pressure them to vote with you. But here's the problem. You already have the dogs out on them. They're going to have these people coming against them. If they were to cave in and then do what these folks want to get done, then they make enemies doubly with their school Mm -hmm. superintendents and their school districts. And so now you have a two-front battle of twice as many people now who want you out of office. There's no political incentive for them to change their position once you've started to call them out publicly and Mm start making their lives miserable. And that's kind of what's been happening. As Abbott's gone to some of these districts, he specifically targeted districts with members in it who had been opposed to a school voucher program or his ESAs or whatever you want to talk. They handed out Mm -hmm. flyers at these things with the TPPF. (laughs) And so they called, Mm -hmm. basically they, they basically had already fired up people to vote against these guys. You can't put that back in the box. Like that needs right. to be your last, you know, you know turn in the political fight. It can't be early on and then now try to convince them to switch over so they will commit essentially political suicide. Cuz you're not going to win if you have the both the school voucher people and the anti school voucher people against you. Yeah, right that's kind of what's yeah. happened now. Like there's no political way for them to move for you even if you wanted them to. They can't get there. And so I think that's a major crazy political miscalculation. I'm not sure who advised who on trying to do that, but it just doesn't make any sense like for any of these people. And 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 going back, it's like what I thought was kind of like a, a little amusing about that mm-hmm. event at the governor's mansion where the governor says, Hey, we're close, we're gonna get this done. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then so what does he do later that day? Instead of going over to the legislature to, you know, to deal with these opposing factions and kind of smooth things out, he hopped on a plane to the Middle East to deal with Middle right. East peace <laughs> mm-hmm. rather than take on the Texas legislature right now, where mm-hmm. Dan yes. Patrick and Dave Feeling are, you know, dropping, you know, all kinds of crazy comments about each other on that, yes, and so course. I I think that kind of told me <laughs> a lot too. It's like instead of yes. dealing with the legislature, the hell he out. picked a war zone. He picked a twenty thousand year old war zone to go a hang out in.
0: war zone. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Wait, wait. Well, and I was you know I was going to give you um, you know just sort of the overview of the master class that Abbott has given all of us when it comes to fumbling the ball at the Texas Legislature. First, it was doing those pro-voucher rallies in the districts of members who have not been for this. I'll, I'll mention this again. At one of those events in Corsicana, where one of the Republicans uh, who has been against vouchers represents the area, Cody Harris, who I think is someone who might be convinced to go along with some form of a small voucher program. At that event, Abbott was shouting at the crowd, to call your state representative and tell him to support my program, but the state representative was sitting right there. He should be having a private meeting with him and talking him through why he should support his deal. All of that seemed very strange to me. Um, Remember earlier in the year when Governor Abbott went on his veto spree at the end of the regular session, vetoing almost a record number of bills. The only governor who vetoed more was Governor Perry back during his uh, first uh, special session, or his first uh, session as governor? Uh, after George Bush had ascended to the White House, at that time, my publisher Harvey Kronberg called it uh, the drive-by vetoes because Perry never said he was going to veto any of these bills, and then all of a sudden, he vetoed a bunch of bills. And you know how when he when the governor vetoes bills, there's a there's a, basically a letter from the governor that says why they vetoed the bill and at that time it was so sloppily done that some of the veto messages didn't even go with the bills that that, that it wasn't even about the same topic it, it it was just you know he was vetoing a bunch of bills when perry did that all you know about 20 years ago what he was trying to do was assert that he was the big dog on the block now and that legislators needed to come talk with him, have conversations with him about their legislation, which for the remainder of his time in the governor's office, they did do that. The reason he was doing that was because there was some uh, some criticism and some sort of laughter at Perry because he didn't win the governor's office in an election. He ascended to the governor's office from the lieutenant governor's office. So there was questions about his uh, legitimacy, and he wanted to say, you damn right I'm the governor. I'm going to veto all these bills. (laughs) Well, Abbott, this year, he vetoed a bunch of bills, and the letters that he wrote to go along with the vetoes said things like this. If you will pass my property tax plan, then maybe we can come back to this bill. Or if you pass vouchers, maybe we can come back to this bill. And this was on unrelated bills. Some of them were very targeted at certain members who had opposed vouchers and everything. I heard from a lot of Republican lawmakers who asked this question, They said, well, we did end up passing the property tax plan, so why aren't those bills that he talked about back then, why aren't they on the special session agenda? So he didn't keep his word on that. They're aggravated by that, believe me. He also, remember, kept saying that he would not, we just talked about it, that he would not add school finance to the agenda unless vouchers passed first. And then what did he do? He put it on anyway, even though vouchers didn't pass. So, so whether it was a threat from Abbott or a promise, both were hollow. I had a Republican um, operative a couple of nights ago called me and said, "Scott, Abbott's screwing this whole thing up." And and the dynamic that he's missing is that at the Capitol, at least, because of his actions, no one fears him and no one loves him either. Right. It, 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 they were ta- This person was talking about back in the day of Bob Bullock and, and George Bush at the Capitol. Bullock ha- was feared by a lot of people. George Bush was loved. So they kind of had a good cop, bad cop thing going on. Now there's like no cop on the beat because there's, the guy's not feared or loved. He's asking them to do something and it's completely detached from reality. The votes aren't there. You got Phelan and Patrick just as you said, just dropping you know rhetorical bombs on each other about a different issue that we'll talk about in a second. Um, but I'd put it this way. If Governor Abbott had ever in the past proven that he could be a good mediator between the Speaker and the Lieutenant Governor, it would make sense to call another special session. But he's never even shown that he wants to be a mediator between these two. So why in the world would you immediately call them back next week when they are already at each other's throats and there's no Um, you know, there's no environment, uh, that's been created to, to see any kind of collaboration between these people. It tells me that it's just politics, not policy. I mean, there's, there, there are instances of putting, you know, politics before policy, but the policy just, they didn't even come out with a bill, Jeremy. He said they were going to have a bill that day. They didn't. Yeah. They, They didn't hammer out an agreement. They didn't. The governor also said that they had an agreement. They had a deal with the speaker and the speaker within minutes put out a statement from his office that said, we're going to keep talking. And then the very next day, Lieutenant Governor Patrick said, well, they didn't check with us in the Senate. So that's not, you know, obviously his negotiating partners didn't, you know, know about this supposed deal until he said it in a press release. And I guess a version of it at that uh, at that deal with you uh, at the governor's mansion. Um, I think this is very cynical. I think when the governor said that there was a deal, he was betting that his voice as the governor would be the only one that mattered, that people would trust him, that, 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 that the public and primary voters would trust him, that there had been a deal. And even though there wasn't a deal, if Phelan said that there wasn't a deal, then those primary voters wouldn't trust the speaker. They would trust the governor that there had been one and that now the speaker is the one who's backing out of it. But that's But the reality is there was no deal for him to have announced.
1: Well, and, and think about the uh, – the, the, if you want more drama in the situation, you go back to what you know, Dan Patrick said. If he does want them to have uh, the next special session in February, you know, why would you do that? It's like it's not just because people are tired and want to go home. Uh, it's also because that will be primary month. You know the you know we already talked about that March you know primary is sitting right there, and so early voting and absentee voting will be underway. But to me, it's like again that adds to the same kind of problem. You know, we're just like you're putting pressure on people who can't move to your side anyhow, and now you're gonna do it in an election cycle. And if they win their re- you know re-elections, guess what? You're never gonna get it then. It's like, and so you've just kind of set the stage for, you know, while you're trying to embarrass the Republicans who aren't voting for school vouchers, you may do the opposite, which is solidify the opposition if they, you know, hold on and win their primaries. And so I think that it's, it's a weird calculation there. And, and, and look, and I'd be remiss if I didn't go back to remember a couple of weeks ago when we had Greg Abbott on this show saying that he's on the one yard line on school choice. It's like it mm-hmm. look he he is actually like – he joked about it at the time, but he literally is in the same spot now where the Texas Longhorns were against Oklahoma. It's like he's now tried right. to run the ball yeah. the same darn way he's done it over and over again, up the middle, over and over again. and like It's just the wrong play. <laughs> you need it – like he said at that time when he used that analogy that he was going to f- find creative new ways to call plays that will make mm-hmm. sure we get over that one-yard line and not – you know do the same mistake texas did well that's not what happened here it's like it's the same kind of play Okay, all right we'll embarrass the 20 r- rule republicans into liking mm-hmm. this oh they're not doing it okay we'll embarrass the 20 we'll republicans who won't right. go with us again it's like it's the same thing over and over again at some point you've got to change what you're doing uh yeah. and just realize this is not again it's like i I've been around politics long enough to understand this is 101 stuff. These guys can't come to you now because of what you've done. You've got to right. figure out something entirely different because you've painted them in a weird corner where they have there's no incentive at all for these rural republicans to join you now. It's mm-hmm. like unless you promise them something completely off the books. So I just I just don't understand where we're going at this point.
0: Well, and because of that, we, I reported out at quorumreport.com this week, and I mentioned it on the Chad Hasty show uh, out in Lubbock and Wichita Falls and everywhere that he's on the air now. That guy's building a radio network. Um, I have heard I don't agree with this but I have heard from some Republican lawmakers in the House who privately will say that because of the dynamic you're talking about Jeremy that some of them don't believe that Abbott even really wants a voucher bill on his desk that he wants this as a campaign issue against them and he wants to be you know he wants to be on the stump about it talking about it but he doesn't really want it to pass and the reason they're saying that is because of what you said he's not doing any of the things that you would do If you actually wanted to pass the thing, in fact, in some cases he's doing the opposite. Now it's my opinion that he does want the bill, and he just doesn't know how to do it. That he has no clue how to navigate something like this. He thinks he can do it through threats and cajoling and promise, you know, promising certain things. But there are members of the House who remember what I'm about to say. In 2015, when he was first elected governor, that first session that he was in the in the central office at the Capitol. You remember one of his signature issues that year, Jeremy, was he wanted an expansion of pre-kindergarten programs in Texas. And at the time, I wish I was making this up, some people within the grassroots of the Republican Party and some of the third party, uh, you know, right-wing enforcement groups like Empower Texans and it would be the Defend Texas Liberty Pack now. The, these, it's always the same groups. They just changed their names. Some of those on the right, some of those activists were calling pre-kindergarten programs, quote, godless socialism. Close quote. They were all accusing Abbott of pushing godless socialism on four-year-olds, and so you had you had Republican members of the legislature who were very nervous about that because you have some of the activists in this state who get involved in those primaries and can you know contribute to their losses in primaries. Well, Abbott had a meeting, a private meeting with the House Republican Caucus, and the reporting out of that was that the and this is what Republicans who came out of that meeting uh, they told me and they told uh, our publisher, Harvey Kronberg, at Quorum Report, they said that Abbott told them that if they would vote for his pre-kindergarten program, that if they got any pushback in their primaries, that he would be there in their districts to help them in their elections. And all of them complained later that they voted for it, They, they kept their part of the deal, but then Abbott was nowhere to be found. And a couple of Republicans, Jeremy, even told us at Quorum Report that Abbott went so far as to not allowing those members of the House to use his photo in campaign literature because he didn't want to be seen as endorsing any of these people. And so he was nowhere to be – he promised he would be there for them, and he wasn't. Then if you go another primary cycle, two years after that, you had Abbott campaigning against some Republican members of the House – who he was displeased with for a variety of things, mainly because they questioned his executive authority. Lyle Larson, a former representative from San Antonio, and Sarah Davis, a former representative from the Houston area, from West University. Both of them had Abbott show up in their districts and give, I was there for it. He gave speeches in which he said that, hey, you know, these people can run for the legislature if they want to, but they should run as the liberal Democrats that they really are. This is what he's saying at these rallies, and it's a small little crowd of people who are kind of amped up. Well, guess what? They both won their races anyway. Only one of the candidates that he supported in that uh, primary, Mays Middleton, won his uh, seat in the Texas House down in Galveston. I would say that's just because Middleton outspent everybody. The guy just has endless cash. Um, And it wasn't because... You know, Abbott was supporting him, though. I'm sure it didn't hurt, but but that guy was going to probably win anyway. Um, in these elections, when he goes against people who are known in their communities, it hasn't worked out. And and interestingly, Jeremy, in Lyle Larson's former district and Sarah Davis's former district, in those areas, Abbott is popular among Republicans. So two things can be true at once. And the, And Republican members of the House and Senate who are listening to this, and I know almost all of them do, if you don't remember anything else I said during the show, remember this. It's completely possible, because this is what happened in the, in the Davis race and the Larson race. It is very possible that people in your area love you, and they love Abbott too. But, and this is among Republicans, but Abbott, the love for Abbott doesn't translate to a problem for you. Because it didn't for either of them. right? People, it, people in, in the, that part of San Antonio and that part of Houston, if they were Republicans, they liked Craig Abbott. The polling showed that. And yet him going to their districts and trashing them didn't change their numbers. Because guess what? Even though they like Abbott, they know their state representative. If they're a, you know, a voter in a Republican primary, they know them because they're in the community. And they knew that the th- those voters knew that the things that Abbott was saying were just off the rails, that that didn't make any sense. In fact, when I was there uh, in Houston and San Antonio for those races, people would, you know, Republican voters would say, where's he getting this from? Why is he even so mad at them? Didn't make any sense. Those are people who would have voted for both Abbott and their incumbent state rep. So just because he's mad at you about vouchers, that doesn't mean that that's going to translate into you losing. In fact, it'll probably be the opposite. People will say, oh, you know, he's just on a tangent. Don't worry about that. And uh, they'll go on down the road. Now, I don't know if he's going to put money behind some of these challengers, like real money behind some of these challengers, uh, to some of these uh, incumbent Republicans, but I would also say, to one of the points you made, Jeremy, about how these guys are really dug in about their positions now, some of them also now have candidates announced against them in their Republican primaries, and so they're doubly, you know, dug in. They're really not going to change their positions now. You mentioned Phelan and Patrick just lighting each other up, and... (laughs) I think I should do a dramatic reading of some of the things that were said between Patrick and Phelan. What do you think? Yeah. This this came down to the border bill, one of the big border bills, the one that we talked about last week where the Texas House of Representatives melted down uh, over this particular piece of legislation. There are several of them moving in the legislature, right? There's one that's about uh, human smuggling. And there is this bill house bill four that uh, creates you know a new crime of entering the state illegally basically turning um you know police here in texas into immigration customs enforcement right like we're we're going to kick people who are undocumented out of the state you take them down to the international bridges lieutenant governor patrick said that it was a catch and release bill this is something that democrats and Mexican-American Legislative Caucus and others uh, who are immigrants' rights activists and folks who are, as we described last week on the show, people who are legal immigrants or citizens who happen to be Hispanic are fearful of this kind of legislation. Did you know that one of the state senators who was born in the United States when he was, I think, eight years old, was deported to Mexico? Chuy Hinojosa? Oh, wow. Interesting story. I was... was, uh, Uh, And my publisher, Mr. Kronberg, was kind of surprised that 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 didn't get mentioned during all of this uh, debate over the last week. But that was the bill, House Bill 4, is the one that led to the meltdown uh, where Armando Wally, a Democrat of Houston, got right in the face of Cody Harris, who I mentioned before from Palestine, a Republican from East Texas. And this this audio that you're going to hear, we'll play just a little bit of it. You heard some of it last week. Um, This was a a video that went viral. It was not on the front or back microphone of the Texas House. It was just Wally talking to Representative Harris uh, and kind of losing his mind at him. And it turns out that uh, State Representative uh, Ana Maria Ramos from the Dallas area, she captured this on her phone. And I don't even know if she told Wally that she was going to tweet it out. It just went out that he was losing his mind about this. Y'all don't understand the shit that y'all do hurts our community. It hurts us
4: personally, bro. It hurts us.
3: Just just let us debate
4: it. It hurts us to our fucking core. And y'all don't understand that. Y'all don't live in our fucking skin.
0: So he and other Latino Democrats were very angry about that bill. And you might have thought, and I went into the legislative session the special session thinking that there has to be at least agreement among republicans that they have to do you know something else when it comes to immigration and border security i i I was thinking that you know abbott and i still think this is right that abbott put those issues on the agenda because he probably knew that vouchers are still you know a long shot in the legislature so he wants republicans to have some victory and he, he wants himself to have a victory when it comes to the issue that inflames the gop base the most which is you know border security, and immigration. Um, Well, now the way that Phelan and Patrick are talking about each other, (laughs) it's hard for me to imagine that they're going to pass this bill now. Now I would, for those who are concerned about it, I would still watch all the way through, you know, next Tuesday into the middle of next week, because anything can happen in that last 48 hours. I'll put it this way. Jeremy, the governor said to you that there's enough time to get school choice done in the session. He's right, but only if all of the leaderships working together. Yeah, good point. If they if they were <laughs> if they were doing, I've seen them do this at the very end of legislative sessions. It would happen where they've been at odds over something, and all of a sudden, all the all the pieces of the puzzle start moving through the process, and it's done within twelve or twenty four hours. That could happen with this immigration thing, but it seems to be stalled out. Patrick was just going off on feeling on Twitter yesterday. On the, on the school choice issue, he said, quote, the Speaker's goal is to stay Speaker and not to help parents and teachers. He blames the Governor, the Senate, and me to cover up for the House's dysfunction under his leadership. Phelan, talking about House Bill 4, the immigration bill, he said, quote, the Lieutenant Governor's statement about me, Phelan, is a desperate bid to salvage what's left of his credibility on border security. The, the the lieutenant governor did a series of tweets in which he just i wish there i wish there was audio of this of, of the lieutenant governor saying it so we could play it for you but here's here's part of what uh patrick said in his rant on house bill 4 he says that it's crap the short version is he says it's crap he said quote The House version of HB4 does not require proper identification of suspects, fingerprints, or a background check and allows illegal border crossers to return whenever they want, time and time again. Even if returned to the border, this policy would allow unidentified, hardened criminals and terrorists to slip through the cracks and cross the border over and over again. To which Phelan said... Patrick, quote, Patrick's baseless critique of House Bill 4 is a transparent attempt to deflect from his chamber's own impotent response to the growing crisis at our border, a crisis demanding decisive action, not the ineffective strategies being peddled by the Texas Senate. Close quote. This, I think, Jeremy, is the best case for Abbott to not call another special session, If he really wants to see anything happen on any of this stuff, it's got, how did we get here? Remember the entire special session started the very first day before they even gaveled in started with Patrick saying that the speaker should quit. Yep. Right. He, remember he, he said the speaker should resign before the house gavels in so they can pick somebody else. And that was in response to Phelan calling out Patrick for taking $3 million from wealthy Paxton supporters and those supporters the guy who runs the political action committee for those supporters had met with a known Nazi sympathizer. And on the very first day we played the audio right here for you on the show, you had Dade Phelan saying that I'm not the one who met with Nazis and their sympathizers. That's someone else's problem. But he meant Dan Patrick. So if anybody is surprised here at the end of all this, that school choice didn't have a shot anyway, and it just made it even worse that these guys are fighting with each other. Um, If anybody's surprised now, I guess I kind of, I actually, Jeremy, I don't see a lot that surprises me anymore. I'm kind of surprised that they're not setting all that aside to just do a border security thing, because that is what all their voters want. I I think these border bills are way over the top, inappropriate, and really offensive to a lot of communities in the state. I don't support this at all. But let me tell you something, the hardest right voters all want something like this. And so for Abbott, Patrick, and Phelan to not get on the same page, it speaks to what's going on in Austin, is the leadership is absent. You said it. He swore he had a deal on vouchers and skip town. I'm cynic- I'm cynical enough to think, <laughs> cynical enough to think that Abbott and his political consultant sat uh, in a room somewhere and they talked about this. So where could we go? that's thousands of miles from the Capitol and that no Republican would ever criticize us for going there. He gets two two things out of it. One, nationally, of course, people are interested in seeing the governor of Texas go to Israel. And number two, you're not going to see Phelan or Patrick or anybody criticize him for going to Israel. Right? The timing of that is fascinating. Um, and I had one one Republican after another saying that, and I'll just tell you what they told me, that that's bullshit that if he really wants to work on these things border security his school choice thing he'd be in austin he could he could do all sorts of things to support israel he doesn't need to be there he he needs to be here he's the one who called the special session nobody patrick didn't call it Feeling didn't call it none of the house members or senate members called it he's the one so show some leadership well, but he's not doing that
1: well, and, and as we've talked about, it's it's not just the bad blood coming off the Paxton uh, trial, which obviously was there going into this special. But remember, during the regular session, you know th- th- we have <laughs> moments where Dan Patrick's holding fistfuls of dollar bills and calling <laughs> Dade Feeling names on television, it's
0: California Dade. California yes. Dade, yeah. And,
1: and 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 there was points where you know Dade Phelan was you know was you know completely ghosting him and not meeting with him for most of the first part of the session, despite Patrick asking for meetings, you know, time and time again from them. And like Phelan wouldn't do it. And so this is what Abbott was calling back to the to the legislature. Mm-hmm. Like and look, <laughs> maybe when he comes back from Israel, which I think he's back already, but, you know, okay. one of the things he probably might want to take a, a kind of a, a signal from what he saw in the Middle East is maybe what he needs is a cooling off period, like where he yes. just like has these people like let him go home, you know, call yep. essentially a ceasefire between Abbott and, and Phelan or between Patrick and Phelan and gives them time to <laughs> yeah. kind of get the heck away from each other because they're right. killing each other. Every time they have a chance to say yeah. something bad mm-hmm. against one another, they, they are do doing it. I think right. I think this is a case where it's like, you know, I, I, I when I was in Florida, I remember talking to the governor and asking him something similar. It was Charlie Chris at the time. And I asked him, mm-hmm. are you going to call them back for another special session? And he goes, I think mm-hmm. we all need a break from each other. And this right. might be The classic moment where everybody probably needs a break from one another. The tensions are too high. If you can't even get a border security bill out of a Republican-dominated legislature to a Republican governor, what is is happening here? And so so you end up – Abbott's in this position where his voucher bill, he's probably not going to get it. The border bill might not get it. The stuff he right. asked for Colony Ridge, he's not going to get it because mm-hmm. there was nothing there to begin with. Right. Uh, right. Teacher pay raises he just added, not going to get it. Not so at some right. point you have to ask yourself, what have you just walked yourself into? Now Abbott is kind of going to be in this spot where he kind of looks like he called everybody in for this event that nobody could get anything done with. It's like at what point does that speak to his leadership as you were talking about before? If you're going to call them in, you better have a plan to get this stuff to the finish line. You can't right. be doing it on the fly when you have members who are really mad at each other. It's like they can't be the go-between. There is no go-between between you know, Dade Phelan and Dan Patrick now that clearly is getting stuff done. It has to be Abbott, and Abbott's not volunteering for that role. He's not
0: doing it, And probably
1: for good reason. I'm not sure if I'd want to be between those two guys right now either, but you can't call them into a special session, ask them to do stuff together, and then be surprised that they're not doing stuff together because they kind of despise each other right now. That's the only thing I'm getting out of their Twitter feeds right now. These guys – just don't like each other. And they like each other less than I thought they (laughs) didn't like each other a month ago. (laughs) Yeah, you already
0: thought thought that they hated each other. These guys just, yeah, everybody knows somebody who rubs them the wrong way. And these people, they they just don't like, they fundamentally don't like each other. Uh, The other thing I would say about it is whether I like it or not, because people will say, oh, Scott, you know, um, you're probably just aggravated that the legislature has to be there all the time now. Whether I like it or not, here's the proof uh, in the pudding. It's not effective. If you, if you don't have a real debt, let me think about this. If you're an employer or you're an employee somewhere in a business, this is an easy way for people to think about it. If you don't have a deadline for people to get their work done, it doesn't get done. Right? So if you, at the end of the legislative session, if you say, we're going to have one special session after another, after another, after another, until this happens... What you're doing is you're not giving the people in the process a deadline to complete their work. The way we've always done this in Texas prior to Abbott, and that that doesn't mean that there were never special sessions before, but they were treated differently. Abbott is calling the legislature into special sessions in perpetuity as if that's a strategy to get something done. He could have learned earlier this year, like we all did on the property tax debate, that not having a, a real deadline to finish the work meant that they didn't finish the work. You remember at the very end of the session, we kept saying, well, he's just going to call them right back for a for, you know, for a property tax special session, which he had made clear that he was going to do. And that's the kind of thing, Jeremy, where they should have been able to do it in the five months during the regular session. Patrick, Phelan, and Abbott all agreed that something needed to be done on property taxes. There's no reason that two special sessions had to be called for that other than Patrick and Phelan, as you said, not liking each other and not working together. There should be consequence for that failure. It should be that the governor would want to have the last thing he would do be to say, hey, I'm going to call a special session. He should be involved way before that. He should be rolling up his sleeves, talking to those guys, getting them in a room, and saying, guys, this is the thing that all of us promised that we were going to do. Every one of, and, you know, Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives— all agreed something should be done on property taxes. They were arguing about the details of that. Important details, but details nonetheless. When you get to something like school vouchers, which has never seriously been considered by the Texas legislature, as you pointed out previously, Jeremy, Governor Bush couldn't get it done with a very limited program. Same thing for Governor Perry. These were people who worked a lot better with the legislature than, than Governor Abbott. They still couldn't get a small program done. And to think that it's a strategy legislatively to just say, I'll just keep them in Austin forever. No, people are. Let me tell you something, Governor. I know at least his staff listens. The members are giving you the legislative finger. They're tired of this. They're done with this. I was on the House floor when the Speaker announced that members, we're going to come back at some point on Monday or Tuesday. And everybody had on their, almost everyone had what, I, what you know, what we grew up calling a shit-eating grin. Everybody just thought they, this is over, and they're giving the middle finger to the governor. His voucher deal is, is dead. That's when people were telling me that this thing is six feet under. It's over with. And, and, and the meat grinder that you've been putting everybody through is not worth it. Even, I mean, Patrick, as you said, for two reasons, would be saying, let's do this in February. One is because he would like that to be the backdrop for the primaries for some of these House members, I'm sure. But number two is we need to get out of here to even have... The acknowledgement of that from Dan Patrick, even if it's a secondary thing within what he's saying, I think it's important because Patrick has also been one to say, we should have one special session after another. He said that with his bathroom bill in 2017, that didn't work out. And now they're saying it about school choice. And guess what? It doesn't work out. This is the part of the calendar where you record your wins and losses and you go do the campaigns. You want to beat these guys, go to their districts and beat them. Um, that's what, as you pointed out, that's what Kim Reynolds did in Iowa as the governor there. That's how she got her voucher bill. Go beat them. Go beat these people in their campaigns. And guess what? You probably can't. They'll get somebody here and there. That always happens. You always have some surprises. You can't believe this person lost or that person won. But, you know, for the most part, they're not going to get these rural Republicans out of office because people in their communities know them and support them. And for a lot of them, they've been sending them to the legislature for a long time. I'm done. Are you done? Is that enough show? <laughs> yeah, I, I think
1: we'll, we'll take our own advice want, and like give a, 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 a call a ceasefire.
0: <laughs> we have a deadline here, which is we do the show for about an hour and then it's done. And then we give a deadline to send this audio over to the governor's office, Evan. And then we give the audio <laughs> over to Evan and he puts the show together and there's a deadline. It's going to come out on Friday evening. This is what we always do. People, people like consistency, Governor. You know, they want they want consistency in their schedule, consistency in their programming, in their legislating, in everything. Now, if you haven't voted, I should say go vote, right? I'm going to go vote as soon. I need to do that. This is the last day that you can early vote. By the time the show comes out, uh, I think the early voting will be over. So, But you can still vote on Tuesday and don't vote uh, without being informed. You know, if, you, if you're voting on this, is, uh, people forever have said if they don't understand a proposition that's on the ballot. Then they just leave that one blank. Yeah, I support that, I- but well, I would say I support that, but I would say that you can get informed on all of them pretty quickly. The League of Women Voters, for example, has a great guide uh, that you can find. I uh, just punch in uh, Texas League of Women Voters, and their guide is really cool, Jeremy, because it get, for each of the propositions, it gives you the arguments for and against it, so you can kind of figure out what you think about those things.
1: Yeah, and I was going to add. Actually, the Houston Chronicle and the San Antonio Express News both have guides on the constitutional amendments, too, That is worth your Read time. I used it, felt a lot better about some of the uh, constitutional amendments I had kind of forgotten mm-hmm. were on there. So I, I really, yeah. you know, at the risk of being a homer, uh, really, you, you know, check out that Houston Chronicle voter guide. It, it really is good.
0: Check them all out. I mean, I, I don't want people to be uninformed. So if you if you really don't understand the proposition, don't vote on it. I have always given people that advice, but you, but there's no reason to not be informed. You've got all weekend to read about it, right? This is not an unsophisticated audience. Y'all can figure it out. Okay, all right. That's enough show. That's enough advice. That's enough bitching from me. I can't wait for the next legislative <laughs> session, Jeremy. Clearly, uh, well, that's. I guess we'll be talking about that come next Friday. All right, Evan Scherer is our producer. My thanks to him. You can check out uh, Jeremy's newsletter. I believe he's got a full write up on that uh, Trump J six thing coming out uh, this evening. You can check that out. His uh, link to sign up for his newsletter is the pinned X post. It's the pinned tweet uh, on Jeremy's um, Twitter account, his X account, which is at Jeremy S. Wallace. You can follow me. It's my name, Scott Braddock, at Scott Braddock on X. I'm getting used to that. Uh, Subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com. We'll see you next time.